Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to explore some of the Michigan connection to the most well-known shipwreck that ever happened in world history. And that is the Titanic. Did you know that there were over 61 passengers that had a connection to Michigan that were on board that ship that fateful night. So today we're gonna talk about some of the stories of the survivors that were from Michigan or had a Michigan connection or people that had some sort of connection to Michigan that had a connection in one way or another to the Titanic disaster. So come along and join me. So we all know the story about the Titanic. Of course, there was the popular movie that came out, and uh, it was, for the most part, considered by critics to be fairly historically accurate. Um, of course, there is some embellishment with the whole Leonardo DiCaprio and the girl standing on the bow of the ship and so forth, but there's a lot of uh, historical accuracy about the voyage. And on that fateful night of... April 14th, 1912, the unsinkable Titanic, as we know it, hit an iceberg and slowly took on water until it finally broke and sank in the icy North Atlantic the next day. So the story is not so much about the Titanic in this episode as it is about exploring some of the lives of the survivors that were connected with Michigan, and particularly I want to focus on the stories of Southwest Michigan because there's a surprising number of them that came from this corner of the state or found their way to this corner of the state. There were a lot of passengers that were on their way to Michigan in that crossing, and uh, it's just kind of interesting that there was over 61 of them. Now, how many were actually on board the Titanic? There were roughly 2,200 people aboard the ship, and almost 1,500 died in the sinking of the ship. So it was a very big maritime disaster. And one of the uh, very good books written about the story of the Titanic and the sinking was written by Walter Lord, and it was called The Night to Remember, and it's sort of a minute-by-minute account of the sinking of the Titanic going through... A lot of historical detail, and uh, it's a good place to start if you're interested in reading about the story of the Titanic. And I'll put a link to that book in the show note descriptions of this episode if you're interested in getting a copy from Amazon or something like that. Now, the first story I want to talk about is Dickinson and Helen Bishop. This story I first came across when I did a cemetery tour in Sturgis, Michigan, uh, three years ago now. Uh, I just got done finishing filming of the third year they've held that cemetery tour uh, just this past weekend. And in the first tour, they had a feature of Helen Bishop as one of the reenactors at that cemetery tour. And I learned about Helen Bishop and her story. But her story is a very sad one. She and her husband, Dickinson, were on their honeymoon, having a good old time in Europe. And they had uh, been traveling in Europe for months on a grand tour as part of their honeymoon in 1912. And they had stops in France and Egypt, and they were having a good time on their honeymoon. And then when they were ready to make their return trip 
to the United States and returned to Michigan. They were headed to their hometown of Dwajak. They decided to delay and adjust their trip so that they could be among the first-class passengers on the maiden voyage of the Titanic on their return trip across the Atlantic. And, of course, you know, we know what happened is that the uh, Titanic sunk on April 14th. Well, actually, I think it officially sunk on the 15th because it hit the iceberg in the evening of the 14th, and it took many, many hours before it finally took on enough water to break in half and sink. And that was 111 years ago as of this year. And so the bishops were among the 61 passengers on the ship with Michigan Connections. So what happened to them, and how did they survive? Well, Dickinson Bishop had inherited a stake in the prosperous Round Oak Stove Company when he met his first wife, who died in childbirth. So he courted Helen, and they got married, and she had money herself, and Dickinson was well off. And Helen, who is a daughter of a Sturgis furniture store manufacturer, so they hoped to return from their European fun honeymoon, and they wanted to be able to have tales of about the luxury accommodations for the first-class passengers on the Titanic and, and really talk up the experience and encourage their friends to take a journey on the Titanic, and, and of course the elite journey of being on the maiden voyage was going to be quite a story to tell when they returned to Michigan. But of course we know that that's not how it went down. And Dickinson Bishop found himself facing a lot of criticism when he returned. And how did they actually get off the Titanic? And what was the circumstances of how they survived? Well, they were on one of the first lifeboats that were put into the water. Now, when the ship began to sink, a lot of people didn't believe that the ship would actually go down when it first hit the iceberg. And so the lifeboats weren't filled. The lifeboats could sit uh, 68 or 70 people, and the first lifeboat was filled with 28 people. And Dickinson Bishop and his wife got into the first lifeboat, and then they were put into the water. And we saw that in the film, The Titanic, how the lifeboats weren't being entirely filled because they didn't really think or take it seriously. Plus, there was a lot of issues with the Titanic. If you follow any of the documentaries on it, that they, they didn't put as many lifeboats as was required for the passenger count. It was done that way because of aesthetics. They didn't want to have all of these lifeboats on there. And so the irony of that combined with the fact that people weren't filling the, the early lifeboats and there was room for another 30 or 40 people on some of those boats when they were put into the water is quite a, uh, a tell when you look back at it in retrospect of the uh, the attitude of the people when the ship first struck the iceberg. I mean, of course, it was billed as this unsinkable ship, so it was kind of unbelievable that something that large could be sunk. And so the people going into the first lifeboat, most of the passengers didn't really take it seriously. They were still having a good time and partying, and the panic didn't really set in at that point. But Dickinson and Helen Bishop got into that first lifeboat, and the first lifeboat was launched. And the bishops were among the only 28 passengers in that boat. And of course, I mentioned before, it had a capacity of 68 that it could have taken on. So 40 seats 
on that uh, lifeboat were left empty. So Dickinson received a lot of criticism when he returned to the United States because he was considered to be an able-bodied young man who survived the disaster. And so many other people did not. And some newspaper accounts even suggested that he must have dressed as a woman to get in a lifeboat and get a spot on a lifeboat. And so he was criticized for not having died on the ship, you know, because he was able-bodied. And that means some other woman or child didn't get the seat and drowned in the sinking of the Titanic. And so he faced that criticism for many years after he returned to the United States. And the newspapers of the time, you have to remember, the newspapers were the main form of media and press at this time. This is 1912, so there really wasn't any larger medium than the printed paper at that time. Then television was still down the road and radio was just beginning. So you have this vicious attack that continued anytime his name was mentioned. So he faced a lot of accusations and criticism, and it probably cast a heavy shade on his life that followed him for many years following the disaster. But in December of that year, Helen gave birth to a son who died just two days later. So another sad occurrence in their life. And Helen had a car accident in 1913, and she fractured her skull in that car accident. And she never fully recovered. And the couple eventually divorced in 1916, and she died later that year. So she only lived about four years after the Titanic disaster. Dickinson Bishop would marry again, this being his third marriage, and he would move to Illinois. And he eventually served in the U.S. Army during World War I. And he died in Ottawa, Illinois in 1961. And Helen Bishop is buried at Oaklawn Cemetery in Sturgis, Michigan. Now, some of the other stories of Titanic survivors in Michigan. Winifred Quick. She was an eight-year-old Detroiter. And she was returning from England with her mom whose name was Jane, and her three-year-old sister, Phyllis. And they had been over in England visiting relatives. And they'd gone there without their father. And their father had to remain behind in Michigan to keep working. So they went across the Atlantic on some other liner and had visited family over in England. And on their return trip, they were on board the Titanic. And so when... Her father, Fred Quick, had uh, seen that this family was on the list of survivors after hearing about the disaster. He hightailed it to New York to meet the rescue ship, uh, which was the Carpathia. And so after they returned to Michigan, Jane took her girls on a vaudeville theater circuit around the state. So a lot of the stories of survivors are women and children. There was other passengers from Michigan that were men that I don't believe made it off the ship. There apparently was a number of them in the second class section, and they were on their way to Detroit to find work. So when they returned, Jane took the girls on a vaudeville theater circuit around the state of Michigan, and they told their story of the survival 
uh, Winifred would later marry Alois Van Tongerloo, and she lived a long life, and she died in East Lansing in 2002. Another interesting story is that of Ruth Becker Blanchard. Now, she was a longtime elementary school teacher in Benton Harbor, and she was 12 years old and bound from India with her mom and two siblings aboard the Titanic. They had been over in India, and she was just traveling very similar to the Quick family. She was traveling alone with her mom and her two sisters from their destination, which was India. Their father had stayed behind because they were running an orphanage. So they were on the Titanic on their return trip across the Atlantic, and while they were waiting to get into the lifeboat, Ruth's mother sent her back to the cabin to get blankets because the air temperatures were only in the 30s and their lifeboat was already launched by the time Ruth got back. So her mom said, Ruth, go back to the cabin, grab some blankets for your sisters and myself. And apparently while she was gone, probably navigating the crowded people in the hallways and stuff like that, or maybe there wasn't quite a panic at that point yet, but it was just the distance. And by the time she got back to the lifeboat with the blankets, her mom's lifeboat had already launched. And so Ruth is up on the deck. Her mom screams at her to get in the next lifeboat. And then her mom's boat continues off into the darkness, and she doesn't know what's happened to her daughter. Did she get on the lifeboat? And it wasn't until she was on board the Carpathia hours later that she found Ruth and Ruth had actually made it onto another lifeboat and uh, she was able to look for her daughter when she was on deck of the Carpathia and so they were reunited and Ruth would live a very long life Uh, she never returned to sea she did not want to go back aboard a boat and um, she finally went on a cruise on her 90th birthday so she was 12 years old when she was on the Titanic, and it wasn't until her 90th birthday that she ever went back aboard a boat. And she died shortly after that cruise, and her family arranged for her ashes to be scattered over the Titanic sinking site. Now, it seems to be a common theme in that time period that a woman would travel to Europe or some other Far East destination with the children and the father would stay at home. And it must uh, have been a very common occurrence during that time in history to do that because there's another story of third-class passengers, Hannah Tuma and her two children. And they were on the Titanic on their return trip across the Atlantic. And they were returning to Dwajak very much like the bishops were. And they were headed that way. Hannah was headed that way to rejoin her husband, Darwis, and a brother-in-law, Abraham, who had saved money from farming onions to bring the family back together. So they were probably immigrants. And Hannah remembers watching the tale of the Titanic go vertical and then sink from her lifeboat. And they did make it to Dwajak. The family later moved to Flint, And they ran a grocery store there, and Hannah died in 1976. Now, there are a couple other interesting stories with Michigan connections to the Titanic. They weren't passengers on the Titanic, but they had a fairly significant connection to the disaster. 
and the story of William Erdmans, even though he didn't have a link directly to the Titanic, he followed the news of the disaster closely as it unfolded. And Erdmans, who was a student at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, saw a way to share the dramatic story with the Dutch-speaking community around him. And within a month of the disaster, he wrote and published a memorial book in Dutch. And its success of that book launched William Erdman's publishing company. And he became a respected publisher of religious books, and the company is still in business today. So that was the beginning of his business, and it was the result of the Titanic disaster that he had that inspiration to become a publisher. Kind of an interesting connection to the Titanic disaster. The other interesting connection is from Michigander U.S. Senator William Alden Smith, and he was instrumental in preventing future disasters of Titanic proportion. He initiated an investigation into the sinking, much to the dismay of the British operators of the vessel. The popular opinion in Great Britain was, why are you sticking your nose in our business? And it wasn't very much appreciated by the British government of that time period. However, the White Star Line, which operated the ship, was owned as part of American J.P. Morgan's company. So he led an investigation into the disaster from his position as a U.S. senator. And the investigation led to requirements that life jackets and lifeboats for all passengers be kept on every ship. And the Titanic was short of them. They didn't have enough life jackets for the, the quantity of passengers they had on board. And they certainly didn't have the quantity of lifeboats that became a standard after that. And you had less than 700 people that survived the Titanic disaster as a result. So this investigation also created the International Ice Patrol, which tracks the movement of glaciers. And since the Titanic, there's been no ship that heeded the warnings of the International Ice Patrol that sunk. Uh, and that all comes from the creation of that organization to track the movement of icebergs in the Atlantic. Now, today, that has evolved into the Coast Guard maintaining an extensive network of lifeboat and search and rescue stations, which use surface vessels and aircraft in the North Atlantic shipping lanes. And it also operates the International Ice Patrol today, which maintains surveillance of icebergs in the North Atlantic shipping lanes. And that was all a result of the intervention by Michigan U.S. Senator William Alden Smith. So that's kind of an interesting little synopsis of the Michigan connection to the Titanic and the huge disaster and the story of some of the survivors. I hope you found this interesting. I certainly did in looking this up. I think everybody has a bit of uh, fascination with the Titanic. I, I sort of had a fascination with it even before the big uh, movie came out. I've read a lot of books on other maritime disasters over the years, and I may do some other episodes on connections with survivors from some of those disasters if you guys are interested in that, because there's bound to have been a few Michigan survivors on some of those other ones. But that's going to conclude today's episode. If you enjoyed listening to this show today, please be sure to hit 
the rating button on whatever app that you are listening on and be sure to leave a review if that option is available to you on whatever app you're using and tell other people about the podcast. If you see this show link on a social media page like Facebook or Nextdoor or Twitter or something else out there that I share it on occasionally, uh, be sure to share it with your friends and invite them to come listen to the podcast. It always helps when I build up my listener base. It opens the door to new advertising opportunities for me and uh, helps me get a little revenue to offset the time and investment that I put into putting this podcast together. If you'd like to make a contribution to the work that I'm doing here, I finance all of this myself, and sometimes having a little extra cash here and there helps offset some of the cost of uh, the material that I use to research some of these episodes. So you can go to michaeldelaware.com. There is a Donate Option button on there through my LibrePay account, and you can sign up to make a contribution of, say, 25 cents a month or something like that. Every little bit helps. If every one of my listeners out there did something like that, it would certainly help uh, carry this podcast forward into the future for me. And you can also send me a message on there. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners about suggestions or stories or things that they have to comment with me about some of my uh, shows. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you so much for listening. 